Data suggests that America's air travel boom might have peaked. And I'll talk with Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis, about citywide mental health proposal, treatment, not trauma. In Brandon Johnson's transition report, you know, he really made the case for treatment, not trauma, using some data from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which showed that about a third of Cook County Jail's 6,000 inmates have been diagnosed with a mental illness. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, August 1st. Want some wins? Wintrust Community Banks is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in personal banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. That's one win, and that's for the second year in a row. That's a win-win. And you can now earn even more interest with Wintrust's new savings rates. That's a win-win-win. To get your savings some wins, visit Wintrust.com slash LockNewRates. That's Wintrust.com slash LockNewRates. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2020. Award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Chicago City Council members and public health officials laid out components of a citywide mental health plan. Here to talk all about it, Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis. Welcome back, Catherine. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Amy. So tell me about this, this health plan and kind of what the roots of it are. Sure. So this health plan is called Treatment Not Trauma, and it's based on an ordinance that was proposed a couple years ago by a local alderman. And Brandon Johnson, when he was running for mayor, uh, made this ordinance a really big part of his campaign and, you know, was promising voters that he would implement Treatment Not Trauma, which is essentially a plan to expand and grow the mental health infrastructure in Chicago. So there's basically two components of treatment, not trauma. The first component is reopening 14 mental health clinics that were previously closed under former mayoral administrations. Uh, The second part of treatment, not trauma, is expanding the use of non-police emergency response to crisis events, particularly those that include someone with a mental illness advocates of treatment, not trauma, say that this is a more productive and efficient and humane way to deal with, with, you know, mentally ill people in Chicago, especially those that, you know, are suffering from other issues like homelessness or drug and alcohol addiction, anything like that. The idea behind this is to send licensed social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists to help in these emergency situations rather than armed police officers who typically are not trained to deal with someone suffering from mental illness. And, you know, we have seen certain instances where police officers have ended up killing someone um, who was having a mental crisis just because the situation sort of got out of hand and they weren't fully equipped to deal with it. And what is uh, what is enthusiasm been like for this program? So there's a lot of support for treatment, not trauma from sort of the progressive wing of, of city council and I think more progressive voters in Chicago as well. You know, we sort of got a glimpse of what city council thinks of it in a hearing that happened recently. Alderman Rosanna 
Rodriguez Sanchez. Uh, she was the one that originally proposed treatment not trauma back in 2020-2021. And she led a hearing sort of explaining, you know, what this is about, why it's a good use of resources. And she brought in experts from different parts of the country who have also implemented similar programs. And you know, city council members there, they were mainly from the uh, the health committee, so it wasn't the full city council, but, you know, they had a lot of questions sort of about, you know, how do you measure this, um, how to make it most effective, how to incorporate it in the, the police response here or how not to. And the question sort of gave insight into what city council is, is thinking about this, but so far we have few details on how much this program will cost. Yeah, that was my next question. That seems like a lot to implement, and and it seems like that might take kind of a long runway. So my questions were kind of around cost and and timeline. So if we're not sure about cost yet, do you have a sense of of what kind of timeline and what phases this would go in? So for the reopening the mental health clinics, uh, you know, Brandon Johnson has already said that he would want to reopen them in phases. And the the union um, that would represent these jobs recently put out some numbers sort of saying like some would open in the next year. And then I think all 14 would be open by 2027 or so. And they actually estimated that this would cost up to about $50 million to reopen these clinics. They project that it may cost less than that just because they've sort of overestimated certain things and that the onboarding process may take longer, which would minimize salary expenses over the long term, things like that. Um, a lot of that has yet to be worked out. As far as the 911 response, I think it's really important to understand that treatment, not trauma, will have to contend with a similar program already underway in Chicago. And that program is called the Crisis Assistance Response and Engagement Program, which was part of Mayor Lori Lightfoot's administration. And it's similar to treatment, not trauma, in the sense that it is sending, you know, mental health therapists to 911 response. But in certain situations, they also send a specially trained police officer, which is something that advocates of treatment, not trauma, are really against they typically say that in all instances, a police officer should never be present. I think, you know, there's going to be some issues to deal with there. Like, well, what if a person has a weapon? Then do you send a police officer at that point? And I believe that a, a lot of who is responding to calls will be a case by case thing. But, you know, when we talk about when will treatment, not traumas, 911 response be implemented, it sort of already is underway in Chicago in some respects. And so if this ordinance gets passed, I think we may just see some tweaks or changes to what's already going on in Chicago and, you know, wouldn't have to wait too long to see that either. And what about uh, support from the police department? How is this landing there? So advocates of treatment, not trauma, say that the police are in favor of programs like these uh, just because it sort of takes off a, you know, a burden off their shoulders. And, um, you know, it sort of helps Chicago in general better respond to situations that police just haven't been trained for and aren't necessarily equipped to deal with. And I wonder, too, about the Chicago Department of Public Health. It seems like this very much is is connected to their mission. What about any response from Dr. Allison Arwady? Yeah, so Dr. Allison Arwady, she's the commissioner of CDPH, and she's had sort of an interesting and sometimes contentious role during the discussions on treatment, not trauma. 
you know, like I said, under her 911 response program, sometimes CDPH is sending police officers there. And treatment of trauma advocates have been critical of that approach and critical of Dr. Arwadi. Treatment of trauma advocates have also been critical of her because she has been hesitant to reopen mental health clinics in Chicago. You know, under her plan and under previous Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, CDPH had instead sent funding to private but nonprofit community health centers around Chicago to help them provide mental health care. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot very much touted that work and said, you know, we have mental health resources in every single neighborhood. The Treatment Not Trauma advocates say that nonprofit jobs go through a lot of different workers. Turnover is high. Even with funding from the city, they typically don't have exactly what they need to keep quality high. There's just concerns with that approach. I think what's interesting about Dr. Arwadi is that you know, a day after that hearing at city council, she was having her typical Tuesday social media briefing, and she sort of responded to, you know, what we had heard that day in the hearing, and, and she said that she was not against clinical spaces in any way. She says that, um, you know, it's something that she is certainly behind and is interested in, uh, but she also did sort of raise the I guess, concern that, you know, there are just some people in Chicago suffering from mental illness that won't be able to make, keep, and show up to an appointment at a clinic. And that, you know, even if we do reopen clinics in Chicago, there have to be other ways to reach people who may never get to those clinics, which I think is a valid point. The other thing that Dr. Allison Arwadi has talked about a lot is just her concerns with CDPH's budget. And so this sort of takes us back to how will we pay for treatment, not trauma. As we know, and as I previously reported, CDPH's budget is slated to shrink considerably, be cut in half over the next couple years as some of the COVID pandemic grants that came from the federal government now expire. And we know that very little of Chicago's corporate budget goes to CDPH. And so I think that, you know, as treatment not trauma is is reaching a vote, is going to get implemented, there's going to have to be some tough decisions and conversations going on in the budget process this fall to decide how much money the city will allocate to CDPH that will help pay for treatment not trauma, the expansion of the care program, but also everything else that the health department does. And you mentioned earlier that that some other cities have done something similar. First, what cities are we talking about and and what might we learn from them here in Chicago? Yeah, so a couple of good examples. um, And these were cities whose officials showed up at that city council hearing were from Albuquerque, New Mexico and Denver, Colorado. And Denver, I think, is one area where Chicago can learn a lot from and where we've already sort of taken a model from. The care program that's underway in Chicago already is is in many ways based off of the Denver Star program. And, you know, they have found that they've been able to get people mental health resources in a much more efficient way. And some research has shown that this crisis response program has even contributed to lower reports of low-level crimes. So think things like trespassing, public disorder, residents resisting arrest, you know, all sort of things that 
can sometimes coincide with someone having mental illness um, and getting the police called on them. And I think that this is a really important point when we're talking about any sort of mental health crisis response program, just because we know that so many people who sort of live on the fringes with mental health issues, they are often in a cycle where, you know, someone is calling the police on them. They're getting arrested in jail for a while and then put back on the streets with the exact same issues as before, just to repeat the same cycle. You know, they're not being transmitted to a mental health professional that could help them cope with their illness. You know, if they have a a substance abuse issue, they're not being sent to a recovery center. You know, I think a lot of experts would argue jail is probably the worst place to try to recover. And in Brandon Johnson's transition report, you know, he really made the case for treatment, not trauma, using some data from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which showed that about a third of Cook County Jail's 6,000 inmates have been diagnosed with a mental illness. So I think that sort of speaks volumes about the need to overhaul how we how we deal with with folks with mental illness in Chicago, uh, you know, and making sure that we're getting them the the resources they need rather than fostering this cycle of arrest and put back and arrest again and you know criminalizing mental illness, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm sure there'll be a lot more to discuss on this issue down the road, and we will check in with you again then. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, a third lawsuit against Northwestern alleges that a football player was abused as a minor. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Do you know a leader, a visionary, an influencer, an innovator? Do you know a Titan? Join the ranks of Chicago's Titan 100, a new exclusive community for C-suite executives. Stand up and be recognized and tap into the power of a growing national network. Learn more, nominate someone, or apply today at whipfleecom slash Chicago Titan. That's WIPFLI.com slash Chicago Titan. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. The air travel boom in the U.S. appears to be fading. Bloomberg reported that purchases by U.S. consumers directly from major domestic airlines declined across the board in the second quarter, marking the first drop in more than two years, according to Bloomberg's second measure. The data isn't a full picture, though, because it tracks anonymous credit and debit card transactions made with carriers, but excludes booking sites and corporate sales. Bloomberg reported that people in the U.S. splurged on air travel over the past year as pandemic restrictions lifted, and not even a surge in ticket prices slowed them down. But after facing the highest inflation in decades, consumers have been reducing all kinds of discretionary purchases, including apparel, electronics, and dine-in restaurants. And now it appears they've added air travel to that list. Bloomberg noted that the softness has the potential to derail a rebound that has boosted results across the industry. Delta and Chicago-based United recently raised their annual profit forecasts on continued strength in international bookings. And a record number of passengers are expected industry-wide this summer. But Alaska Air, which is focused on the U.S. and North America, said it's bracing for a hit to this quarter's results as it contends with declining prices and softening demand for domestic travel. 
Fares that they described as really strong through June have declined from record levels in 2022, but remain above 2019 prices, according to Alaska Air's chief financial officer, Shane Tackett. Southwest Airlines posted second quarter sales last week that topped Wall Street's expectations, but worries about how well demand will hold up for the rest of the year. One bullish case for the industry is that lower ticket prices will encourage more purchases. Bloomberg noted that transactions fell in the second quarter from the same period a year earlier for eight of the 10 major U.S. airlines tracked by second measure. The median decline was 5.3 percent, which is the biggest drop since the first quarter of 2021. Typically, air passengers buy tickets weeks and months in advance, so the summer boom has mostly been booked. Second measure tracks when flights are purchased, and that differs from airlines because they only record them as revenue when the flights are actually taken. For example, a ticket purchased in March for an August departure would be considered as revenue in the third quarter when the flight is made, not the first when it was purchased. So until a flight happens, the companies consider it a short-term liability on their balance sheets. So-called air traffic liability is the value of flights that have been sold but haven't yet been flown. Bloomberg also noted that so far, large carriers have reported their second quarters and all but Southwest have experienced weaker growth in air traffic liability or worse. American Airlines, the second largest U.S. carrier, posted its first decline in air traffic liability since the early stages of the pandemic in 2020. Wage growth is slowing down in the U.S. economy as a whole, but not everywhere. The gap between pay hikes across major American cities widened last quarter, according to data published Friday by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The difference between the fastest and slowest increases in employment costs among 15 major metros rose to four percentage points, matching the highest figure of the pandemic period. It hasn't been bigger since 2016. Overall, private industry employment costs in the U.S. rose in the second quarter at the slowest pace in two years, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported, reflecting a labor market that is gradually cooling. In Philadelphia, though, the 6.6% jump in employment costs from a year earlier was the biggest in data going back to 2006. And at 5.7%, the Washington, D.C. metro area matched last quarter's record high. Meanwhile, in Houston, pay increased 2.6% from last year. The city has ranked at the bottom among the 15 major cities for the past three quarters. The second lowest wage increases came in Minneapolis at 4.1 percent, but workers there are at least getting ahead of the cost of living. The city reported an inflation rate of just 1.8 percent in May, the lowest for any major metro in the U.S. Chicago came in at number 12 on the list, with a 4.2 percent increase in employment costs from a year earlier. United Airlines is expanding its network operations facility in Arlington Heights, buying an office building that once was home to Motorola's wireless network equipment business. Cranes John Pletz reported that United bought a 205,000-square-foot building at 1421 West Shore Drive to provide more space for its network operations centers, which moved out of the airline's headquarters at Willis Tower last year after flooding knocked out power and caused it to evacuate flight dispatchers to a backup facility at its former headquarters in Elk Grove Village. Pletz noted in reporting that United soon bought a 200,000-square-foot building at 1501 West Shore Drive from Guardian Realty, which acquired it from Torburn Partners in 2018 for $41 million. United didn't say how much it paid for the building at 1421 West Shore Drive. 
Plitz also noted in reporting that United's acquisition is a rare example of a company adding office space, especially in the suburbs, which has a record high vacancy rate of nearly 30 percent. Most tenants are cutting back on space as they adapt to hybrid schedules coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic that ushered in a nationwide normalization of working from home for many white-collar workers. Some jobs, such as dispatching aircraft and flight crews, can't be done remotely. United has about 15 workers at its operations center in Arlington Heights and it continues to hire. The new building will allow workers to have more space as well as amenities like a larger cafeteria, fitness facilities and more parking. United said it expects to move into the building in January. Another former Northwestern football player is suing the university, alleging he was sexually abused by teammates as a minor and the coaches forced him to play after suffering serious concussions. Crane's Lee and Greco reported that the complaint filed Thursday in Cook County Circuit Court by civil rights attorney Ben Crump and Chicago-based law firm Levin and Percanti marks the third lawsuit alleging that the university was aware of hazing on its football team. While the latest legal action does not name the plaintiff, two other former football players, Simba Short and Lloyd Yates, have also come forward with suits against the school. The plaintiff, identified as John Doe at the center of this complaint, made his first official visit to Northwestern in 2015. During that visit and throughout the recruitment process, Doe was a minor, according to the suit. When rumors swirled among the freshmen about hazing on the team, Doe made it clear that he would not participate. But because he spoke out, the upperclassmen made him their number one target of hazing and warned the freshmen against fraternizing with him, which further ostracized Doe from his teammates, according to the complaint, which also said that some of the worst hazing occurred at the Wildcats training camp in Kenosha where groups of upperclassmen hunted down freshmen in their dorms at the camp and initiated a hazing practice in which they would forcibly hold down the player and sexually abuse them. Gian Greco noted that in addition to the sexual abuse that Doe claims he suffered, the suit also details a culture on the team stemming from the coaches that belittled injured players and forced them to play through their injuries. Those allegations mirror similar claims in Short's lawsuit, which said Short was harassed by teammates because of a neck injury. Doe's is the first claim that alleges coaches forced a player to continue playing after suffering a concussion. A representative at Levin and Percanti said, quote, this was childhood sexual abuse and it led to serious mental health issues for the player during his time at Northwestern, which coaches chose to ignore for the most part. The statement went on to say, as a 17-year-old freshman, he was targeted for numerous acts of sexually abusive hazing. A Northwestern spokesperson said, quote, the university is working to ensure we have in place appropriate accountability for our athletic department. The statement from Northwestern went on to say, quote, we will engage an outside firm to evaluate the sufficiency of our accountability mechanism and to detect threats to the welfare of our student athletes. The statement continued, we will also examine the culture of Northwestern athletics and its relationship to the academic mission. Both of these reviews will be conducted with feedback and engagement of faculty, staff and students. The statement further said, quote, both of these reviews will be conducted with feedback and engagement of faculty, staff and students, and both will be made publicly available. Find more about this story and many others at chicagobusiness.com.
That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.